talk about living your life in chapters. The woman you are about to meet is prolific. Hi, this is Candy O'Terry. Welcome to the story behind her success. She's got a law degree. She's worked in an ad agency. She's been the vice president of a bank, an adjunct professor of finance. She's a two-time winner of the Best English Fiction Literary Award for her crime stories. She's a contributor to Bloomberg Businessweek. She's the COO of a children's furnishings company, a serial entrepreneur, and let's not forget, she is also a devoted wife and the mother of three. How does she do all of this? Well, I can't wait to find out. Her name is Connie Johnson Hambly, and this is her story. Connie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. And a huge shout out to our friend Maggie Van Galen for connecting us to one another. Absolutely. I love Maggie. We've been in writers groups together, and I really do appreciate her connecting me with you. Well, you are clearly someone who was born with many gifts and talents, as my introduction reflects. But if you had to pick just one, what's your favorite? One thing I've always brought to whatever career that I've had is I've able to hear what isn't being said and know that that is just as important as what is being said. Almost like the story between the lines. The story behind her success, too. (laughs) You grew up on a dairy farm in upstate New York. Pretty idyllic. Describe the farm. Paint us a picture. Well, the farm at its largest was about 400 acres of breathtakingly beautiful land just north of New York City within commuting distance to New York. One thing that separated our farm out was that we grew our own hay and corn and feed and fed it to our own cows and milked them. And then that milk was brought into the dairy where it was processed. And for over 50 years, we did home delivery of milk. You know, the dairyman dropping off your milk at the... Milk box. That's exactly right. The insulated milk box. And it was in my backyard. And I deeply appreciated the freedom I had to go out my back door and roam. Farming is hard work. Yes. Sun up to sundown. Mm -hmm. Were you expected to lend a hand and tell us what the chores were that you did? Well, my family did have a lot of help. So I didn't have to get in there with the cows, per se, and milk them. I was a horse person, so I did a lot with my horses and taking care of them. And that was my responsibility. We had a lot of animals. Brothers and sisters? Yes, I'm the youngest. Mm -hmm. Oh, very interesting. Older brother, older sister, yes. A child can learn an awful lot about life. By living on a farm, what were some of those lessons for you as a child? Well, there was a big one. First off, life in a small town is wonderful because there is a tremendous community that surrounds you. You know, life on a farm is simple and beautiful, but it does have its complexities. And there was one big story that really informed a lot of my own personality, where as a young girl, I was in my home, and the next thing I know, there was a a lot of activity. There were cars and trucks buzzing up the driveway, and my mom was in a tizzy, and, and we looked out in our backyard, and our barn was on fire. And it was one of those events where it was close to milking time. There were maybe 100 cows locked in their stanchions, which is the thing that clamps around their neck. And the fire had started in the hayloft. With dry hay, you can only imagine 
how quickly that was going to spread. So my father immediately and the men that worked for us went down and released the cows and and fortunately got them all out in time. But the barn was a complete loss, and it was a truly devastating and life-altering event for my family. I think I read that this was also arson. Yes, it was. Tell me about that. There was a former employee, knew the schedule of milking, and came right at the perfect time, knew when all the cows would be locked in and not able to flee on their own, threw the match in the hayloft, and that was it. That was going to be his final say. On um, his exit. On his exit, yes. And it was one of those things where Miranda rights were just becoming the law of the land. He was arrested. He did confess to the crime. It did go to trial, but they couldn't do two things. One, they couldn't use the signed confession because it was not properly ascertained at that point. And also there was a witness that they could not find. But there was a young assistant district attorney who was very invested in trying to bring this person to justice. His wife and my mom were family friends. And that young district attorney really did everything in his power to try to bring justice to this. And he was, in my mind's eye, I remember him being very tall, lanky guy, dark hair, big bushy mustache. And a lot of your listeners might know this name, and his name was G. Gordon Liddy. But at the time, he was just a passionate, passionate a young uh, DA. Do gooder for justice. And he was an assistant district attorney in the Poughkeepsie office. When you tell the story, it's almost like a curtain came down. It was a part of your life that you will never forget and are changed by forever. Kudos to my mom and dad who really kept the drama of this away from the kids. But there was a chilling effect a mantra came into my life, which is bad things happen to good people. And bad people can look wonderful and they can do reprehensible things. And also the man who torched our barn was a father and a husband. So he was loved and loved others, but he was still able to do something reprehensible because he was motivated by hurt or hate or entitlement or something. And that was something that truly infuses a lot of my writing, where you think you know this person, and instead you find something very, very different. But one thing that was very compelling about this man was years later, there was a knock on the back door, and my mom answered the door, and he said, don't you recognize me? I'm the man who burned down your daddy's barn. In that moment, I give my mom a lot of credit because she, and from her faith and from her heart, found the power to forgive rather than grabbing a rifle. And I give her a lot of credit. When you were growing up, who was your role model? I had so many people around me that I admired, but I really 
was surrounded by very independent and strong-minded women. My grandmother, who was born in Ireland and came across the pond, became a nanny in town. She left her family behind to forge a new life, married my grandfather who started the dairy and, and worked that up from nothing into something. And my mom, too, college-educated, independent career, entrepreneurial sparks in her always. So I, I was always surrounded by women who were able to forge a path. Let's talk a little bit about your college experience. Where did you go to college? And what was your major? And at that time, Connie, did you have a clear idea of who you wanted to be? I went to Manhattanville College in Purchase, New York, with a major in political science and philosophy. And I knew then that I absolutely wanted to go into law. When I was in high school, I was actually dabbling as a fashion model in New York City. And that is all very surface. And I knew I wanted more substance. There was more to me than that. And I felt very strongly that by having a doctorate in law, whether I used it to practice law or not, that it was going to be something that was always going to be mine. Forgive me if I get some of your career chapters out of order, but you were a general partner at an ad agency. Mm -hmm. You wrote for Bloomberg Business Week. You've worked at Fidelity. You've been the vice president of a bank. How did these very different environments shape the woman you are today? I think that in each one of those careers, I was thrown into something that was very different. But I was able to find something inside myself that was strong. And if I stay true to that strong thing inside of me, and was able to project it clearly, I knew that everything was going to be okay. And that's especially true in advertising or marketing, where you have that little tuning fork in your head that's different than everybody else's. And if you stay true to that, it's a vision, it's a motivation, and you can move forward. I think that looking at all of the different things that I've done, there's an itch I wanted to scratch, something new. You've had lots of itches. I had lots of itches. <laughs> but I always wanted to try something, and I always wanted to put myself in situations where I was a little breathless about if I could, can I really do this? Can I really succeed at this? And, you know, sometimes you just have to take a leap. You were writing for businessweek.com, and you had to do some research on a new therapy. Mm-hmm. Was that almost like an aha moment for you? It was because I learned I could talk nerd, that I could interview these incredibly brilliant scientists who wanted to tell me the inner workings of cells and their angiogenesis therapies. And I knew that I had to take that and translate that into what my readers wanted to know. So that was something that I learned that I could do. And it was also something I very clearly learned when I was in law school. Because law, as you know, it's all words. It's shading the language. And what's in my head is very important. But what is more important is if I get my ideas, my words into your head. And I do that by the power of the written word. 
everyone says, oh, did you get your MFA? Did you learn how to write? And I was like, no, law school was my writing boot camp because it didn't matter what was in my head. What mattered, what was on the written page. And that to me is the power of shaping and shading and the power of persuasion. I was just about to use that word. Is it persuasion? Mm -hmm. It is persuasion. And it's persuasion. So I write fiction. I have three fiction novels out. But also I have a very strong journalistic vibe in my nonfiction writing. So that power of persuasion is always tamed by accuracy. And it's either accuracy in the journalist aspect or it's accuracy in playing fair with my readers as I spin a crime and mystery tale. A very good friend of mine says, no knowledge is ever wasted. Here you are writing suspense thrillers, Mm -hmm. crime thrillers. And I have to think that Hmm, maybe that arsonist barn fire was also way in the back of your mind. I'm going to write crime stories. It is. Well, my first novel has a very detailed scene about a barn fire. And I learned a lot. You're right. You inhale a lot of information and the writer's brain is a junk drawer. And then you reach into your brain and you exhale out a story. Do you borrow characters from friends, acquaintances? Like, when am I going to be in your book? Mm-hmm. I've been known to put people in my book specifically to harm them. The writer's adage, especially crime writer, is be nice to me or I'll put you in my novel and kill you. <laughs> but it's all fun. My characters are 99% of the time just a composite of all of these different aspects. That's what makes it fun. I always like to ask about the discipline for your writing. Mm-hmm. How disciplined are you? Do you look at it as a job? I'm going to sit down and this is my job today to write? When I'm really into writing, I park my butt in that chair and I don't get up until I've put down a thousand fresh words. And it could be that I started off the day taking out 800 words of the manuscript. So I use that thousand words, new words a day as my benchmark. My short stories are about 5,000 words. My novels can be anywhere between 90,000 upwards of 120,000. So you can imagine that if you're trying to do a fresh five, you know, 1,000 words a day, that it, it, it can take you a while. And that's just the raw clump of clay down on the wheel. And then comes all the revisions and everything else after that. Well, speaking of the revisions and what was once a clump of clay and is now a book in your hands. Mm -hmm. How did that feel the first time you ever held a book that you wrote? Oh, I cried. Oh, it it was just amazing. Because it really does bring to fruition, to concrete block, all of the work that you've put out there. It's a wonderful moment. I know that you are also a mom. Mm -hmm. Can you share with our audience, how did becoming a mom change you? Wow. Hmm. You know, there's a book called um, Mompreneurs Online. And I was featured in that book for this exact reason, which is how can you balance all of these things? Oh, there's no such thing as balance. All of those, right. There's no such thing as balance. I have one son who's a lobsterman out of Gloucester. Who would have thought? That was a new one by me, and I'm so proud of him. The joy he has working every day is so evident. He loves it. My daughter works with autistic children, and she's 
challenged by that and informed by that and is truly giving, just a generous soul. And another son just finished a 9,000-mile biking and hiking trek across the country. He finished a through-hike on the Appalachian Trail, came back you know, after one year of this incredible adventure, and within a month, he is back at his old company, and as we speak, he's in Madrid with a new career. So talk about living your best life. Three very different kids. I look at them in absolute amazement and encourage them whatever they want to go forth and conquer. Well, they have an appetite for adventure and the apple didn't fall far from the tree because research shows that you have ridden horseback through the jungles of Central America. You've walked the Great Wall of China. You've gone barefoot through the Mayan ruins. What is your theory, Connie, on taking chances? It just have to do it. I think it's a calculated risk. I don't think I would ever be a bungee jumper, but it's calculated risk. Again, it's that little bit of stretch that you have to do in order to live a full life. And also, you know, I kiss the Blarney Stone, so maybe that has something too. There's magic in that, There's magic in that, yes. What are you most proud of? Because this is Mm. an incredibly large body of work. Your stories are winning awards all over the place. Mm. You are really making it happen. Well, I appreciate that perspective. And perhaps you know that sometimes women don't always feel that. So I I greatly appreciate that. And I'm listening to the introduction and what you've just said, et cetera. And I'm like, really? (laughs) That's me. Wow. I'm most proud of the grit I have to make things happen. I have some incredibly challenging things right now going on in my life with a beloved elder in my family. And it's... The ability to, again, hear beyond what's being said, to see the breadth and depth of what's really going on. And I am very proud of the grit I have and the integrity to which I bring situations that I will become and am becoming a very strong advocate for elder justice. And when it comes to elder issues, there's a tremendous spectrum out there. My background in law has taught me that the legislative process to make the laws runs very slowly. Once the laws are on the books, adjudicating those laws, prosecuting under those laws moves very slowly. My focus is on the financial exploitation of elders because I have witnessed what happens. Are you going to write a book about this? I am writing one now. Sadly, it's a memoir about my own personal story witnessing this financial exploitation. When I started to write this, it was very much about what was happening to that person. But then I realized because I was so close that it was really happening to me mm-hmm. and inside my family. And I needed to change the lens mm-hmm. and really show my knickers <laughs> when I'm writing this and really explore what this has done to me and the decisions that I'm making and the actions that I'm not taking. And to show how 
devilishly complex this crime is. So I encourage your listeners out there to find me on my website, ConnieJohnsonHambly.com. There's a contact form on my website. Reach out to me. I want to hear your story. Speaking of stories and speaking of people who've been an influence in your life, has there been one person in particular who always believed in you? My mom has always been my greatest supporter, always believed in me, and also my husband, too. Those two people give me strength in their confidence in me. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? And can you pass that along to our listeners today? If I have to narrow it down, this is something. Act presidential. Because we've heard this in pop psychology. You inhale, you expand your chest, you put your hands on your hips, and you fill your space. And acting presidential, what that does to the people around you is they look at you and they say, she's got it. She's got it. We're good here. Right now, in this chapter in your incredibly full and successful life, how do you measure success? Mm, Success is internal. Success is not accoutrements around you at all. Success is being able to live today so that you can look back at yourself five years from now and say, I made the right decision or I'm okay. It is an internal accomplishment. It is not stuff. It is stuffing in a sense. It is what is inside you. Thank you so much for being on the show. No, thank you. And that's the story behind her success for this week. My thanks to Connie Johnson Hambly for sharing her incredible story with us. Check out her website, Connie Johnson Hambly, and I'll spell it H A M B L E Y dot com. I have a feeling there is even more to come in her story. Thank you for listening. I'm always on the lookout for the next woman to profile. So if you know someone I should feature on the show, will you please let me know? Just go to CandyOterry.com. That's Candy with a Y. O-T-E-R-R-Y.com. I'll have a new inspiring story for you next week. And remember, when we lift each other up, we all rise. What's your story? I can't wait to hear it.